Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Daniel Turner, CEO of Traxel, an optical fiber installation company that's raised over $5 million in funding. Daniel, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me, Brett. No problem. So to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Sure. So as Brett said, my name is Daniel Turner, the CEO and founder of Traxel. Kind of started off my early years going to Virginia Tech with a computer science degree. And then from there, I basically disappeared for a number of years and hid under a rock. I went to work for the intelligence community, and uh, you don't really get to hear much from me during that part of the story. But I really think that set the foundation for being able to start my own company, Traxel, and uh, be able to to leave the intelligence community to go off and, and do something really interesting with fiber optics, which I'm so excited to share with you today. When you were younger, did you dream of working in intelligence? Was that like a, a goal in your like 10-year-old mind that you aspired to achieve? Or like, where did that come from? Or like, how did that come about? I really thought intelligence was an interesting thing. And we lived near Washington, D.C. and grew up in Washington, D.C. So that was definitely always something to think about. When I was going to school at, at Virginia Tech, I got to watch the World Trade Center's fall in 2001. And I think that kind of changed my path a little bit. Uh, originally, I thought I was going to be a video game developer, but you know, seeing that those events unfold kind of pointed me in another direction in, in terms of service. And uh, you know, always thinking outside the box, a creative thinker, and always interested in technology, and then wanting to go after and get the bad guys, that kind of forced me and, and, and led me to look and in working in, in intelligence. I've always wondered when people work in intelligence, is that hard when you move on to something else? Because you have this like entire career, you have all these achievements, but you can't really ever talk about them, right? You can't like list that on LinkedIn, everything that you did. So is that hard to make that transition into the like private life or private sector? Yeah, it was because there's definitely been awards that I received that are classified that I wasn't even allowed to, you know, bring with me when I left. So it's definitely hard to do that. You don't really realize how hard it is until you actually do that. And then you're kind of left with, well, I didn't even have a Facebook. I didn't even have a LinkedIn. I don't even know where to begin to start a business. But, you know, the transition took some time, but, you know, I made it work and I'm pretty happy with the results that I've achieved so far and and the awards that I received while I worked at the intelligence community. I I, I have those memories, you know, they they continue on. (laughs) That's a good way to look at it. You have the memories still. They didn't take that away. (laughs) Yep. Can't they didn't fly red flashy light me thing um, like the men in black? But uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's how I was picturing the little pen in front of your face. <laughs> exactly. Nice. Well, let's switch gears here. And these are just a, a couple of questions we'd like to ask. And really, the goal is to better understand what makes you tick. First one is what founder and CEO do you admire the most? And what do you admire about them? So I kind of have a twofer because they're kind of brothers. I really, really admire the Wright brothers. It's probably a little dated and cliche to a certain extent, but growing up, we used to go to the Outer Banks lot in North Carolina, and I got to go to the Wright Brothers Museum there. And and then I read a book by McAuliffe that talked about their life and their journey and being into bikes and and then trying to go into airplanes. I mean, it's it's just such a journey that gives me a lot of inspiration, actually. 
Nice. And another question we'd like to ask, and this is about books. Is there a specific book that's had a major impact on you as a founder? Yeah, I have a book that that I read that I think it really impacted me, especially with my time in the intelligence community. I got to work with some really, really cool individuals, some former Navy SEALs. And when I left the intelligence community, I, I read a book called Extreme Ownership. And they really kind of talked about taking control and ownership of everything that goes right or wrong within your organization. And this book kind of mixed in and weaved in the tales of being a Navy SEAL, but also kind of weaving in some very, very strong business practices and mindset. And I really liked that book. And it it just had kind of an impact on how I was going to treat my company and my employees and myself as I went through this journey as an entrepreneur. Nice. That's Jocko Willick. And what's it? Wasn't there a co-author of that book? Yeah, I think Jocko was the SEAL and then he probably had a uh, editor of some kind. But yeah, I don't remember if they were both SEALs. But yeah, Jocko, that sounds familiar. Nice. Yeah, I love that book. He just came out or I don't know if he just came out with another one, but I just bought another one from him. And it's like uh, the field manual to self-discipline or something like that. I'll send it to you over after uh, after the call. But it's a it's a fun read. It's really fascinating. I appreciate that. I'd love to yeah check that out for sure. Yeah, no problem. So let's switch gears and let's talk a little bit about the company. You know, we've had a, a lot of companies on in the optical fiber installation space. So you'll have to, you know, really try to make yourself sound different. Uh, kidding, of course. So we've never talked to the company even close to this. So at a high level, what does it all mean? Can you just explain to us what optical fiber installation is and what the company does? Yeah, you know, it's not every day that a new technique for installing optical fiber or communication lines comes about. I mean, ever since the invention of the telegraph, people have been installing fiber cables either underground or stringing them on on poles. And so what we did is we kind of flipped everything on its head and said, what can we do to minimally protect fiber cables and communication lines and deliver them to hard to reach or underserved areas really fast? And I just had this idea of like, let's just paint them directly on the paved surfaces and just use the road network to piggyback off of and bring high-speed internet via the paint lines of the road. So that's a high level. That's that's kind of what Traxel is all about. And what's the origin story? Like, how do you even begin to uncover that problem and come up with the idea in the first place? Yeah, it wasn't until my dad was trying to get high-speed internet out to his house. And he doesn't really live that far away from the center of the universe of the internet. If you know anything about how the internet works, basically Ashburn, Virginia is the center of the universe for the internet. There's all kinds of, of data centers there and it's where all the fiber optic cables usually end up. And he lives in a place called Warrington, Virginia, which is just kind of 30 miles southwest of that. And fiber cables and and communications basically fall off a map. There's really no connectivity. And so he wanted fiber to the home and he called an ISP, a local ISP, and they drove out to his house and basically just laughed right in his face and just said, you'll never get fiber to where you live. There's not enough homes to justify trenching. There's no telephone poles in your neighborhood. It's too expensive. We're not going to be able to get to you. The permitting process is too long. And just Gave a bunch of excuses, but this idea of that ISP driver driving out to his house using the road network to basically turn around and and laugh and say, you'll never get fiber to your home. That was where the start of this idea became. Why couldn't he just drive out and paint a line behind him and bring the internet with him? And that simple idea is really what spawned the whole creation of Traxel. So you have the idea, and then what do you do next? Like, where do you begin? Like, how do you come up with the technology and build the technology? 
Yeah. So you have this idea and you're like, oh my goodness, this is going to be great. And, and you start talking to people and they're literally laughing right in your face. They're just like fiber, like glass, it's just going to break on the road. This is just a terrible idea. But, you know, being, I think a little steadfast and starting where all great startups begin, right? In the garage, I started tinkering around in the garage and buying fiber cables and resins and trying to glue fibers to the garage surface, you know, starting off crawling around on my hands and knees, having the cars drive in and out of the garage without disrupting the signal. I, I kind of, at that point, knew I was onto something because it just didn't break immediately. It was actually running for many, many months before I stopped doing that first initial test. And so that's kind of how it unfolded is just kind of the, the tinkering mindset. Let's just get to work and try to get to what a product might even look like. And Man, those early days, if you could see some of the stuff we tried to do with wagons and fibers blowing in the wind, trying to glue things down, the leaves blowing into the glues and the things we were trying to do, it just, it was mayhem. But, but starting off crawling around on, on our hands and knees, you know, my dad was involved in this. My co-founder who I've known for a very, very long time was got involved and um, just started from scratch from, from nothing really. Wow, that's super crazy. That's one of the coolest starting stories I've ever heard. Now, who's the customer? Like who who's paying for this? Yeah, and that was that was a journey in and of itself. You know, we we came up with this concept. Let's provide a better way to deliver fiber optic cables. And obviously my dad was trying to get internet and then it opened kind of Pandora's box for the complexities involved in that and, and all the stakeholders involved. You know, to get fiber to my dad's house required an ISP to deliver the services. It required the municipalities to approve the use on the roadway. It required the homeowners association in the neighborhood to approve that method to get it. And so it was kind of like, okay, well, who is our customer? Is it is it the homeowner who needs fiber to the home? Well, that didn't that was starting to be really complicated. And then so we started trying to serve municipalities. Can we can we bring fiber to municipalities that need fiber connectivity? and try to extend their networks. And again, it, it was really hard to kind of figure out if we were an ISP or we were a dark fiber provider or we were a fiber installer or we were going to lease fiber cables to businesses who would rent them from the municipality who was renting them from the ISP. And it was just like all this crazy stuff kind of all mixed together. And we finally landed on the printer printer ink bottle where we said, wait a minute, Let's build the machines that automate this installation process. This we call it the Trackster. Let's build these machines and provide them to companies that are already installing fiber cables through other means. They have trenching equipment, they have horizontal directional drills, they have bucket trucks to string it on poles. Let's provide them the Trackster to use wherever and however it makes sense for them. And then we can lease that equipment out and then charge on a per foot basis. So that's kind of the evolution of figuring out where we were. And then I'll add too, we were looking at municipals and businesses and homes and trying to bring and corral the municipality, the ISP and the business or home owner all into one group to decide that this was good. That was really, really hard to do too. So we actually found that focusing on campus-like environments like bases or airports or shipping ports or schools where they own the surface they want to extend the networks on and they own the networks they want to extend and they own where they want the network to go to. That's really been our good go-to-market. 
So we've kind of, it's still a mishmash and we're still figuring it out, but we've kind of landed on a hybrid approach where part of our company has to install fiber cable and be the installer and educate the market and do demos and and provide that that first you know install for companies before they can understand how it works and then the other part of the company will be the manufacturer of the equipment and provide the equipment the training and the materials to make it all work if we look at this market maybe let's just focus on the US how many companies are there that are installing fiber in this way is this a market where it's like one giant controlling the whole thing, or is it super fragmented and there's like a thousand companies in the U.S. doing it? Yeah, it's super fragmented. I think there's something like 5,000 decision makers that we want to get to and go to. You know, it's probably in the thousands of companies themselves that do this. ISPs are doing their own installation work or they're subbing it out. Big ISPs or, you know, tier ones are subbing out a lot of the work, but some of the work they do in-house. So it's a mix even amongst the ISPs and the customers that we're trying to go after, which may be, be both ISPs or fiber installers trying to get new business. Mm, got it. Makes a lot of sense. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Are there any critics of this approach? I feel like whenever you see innovative new technology, there's always those that come out and, you know, criticize it or knock it in a way. Have you had that happen at all yet? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're spot on. Anytime there's there's something new, it's going to have all kinds of criticisms. And, you know, the criticisms are actually what help drive us to get to good answers and solve really tough problems. Because when you had nothing at the very start of this, people would, again, like I mentioned, laugh in our faces but as we evolve the tech, as we showcase the abilities, as we were able to step through those, those obstacles, we got to some really good messaging and basically kind of overcoming the critics that would knock it. And so we know it's not the silver bullet. It's not going to replace trenching or stringing on poles. There's going to be a place for everything. But where we came to it was more of a collaborative approach that said, hey, you know, use this as another technique whenever it makes sense for you. Don't use it if it doesn't make sense. And trying to get down to a good price point, being able to install it on demand and really, really fast, these are what overcome the criticisms that might show up with it, where people might look at the durability as being like the major hangup and being resistant to it because they're, they're scared of how long it's going to last. And what's the core of the pitch to them then? Is it that this is cheaper than the other ways of installing fiber? Is it faster so they can lay it out faster? What's like that primary value prop? Yeah, it really is a faster way to install fiber in some cases on demand that can overcome the challenges of trying to go underground or burying fiber cables. When Whenever you cut into the ground, you never know what you're going to run into. There's a lot of other obstacles in the way that you have to avoid and this provides a solution that uses pavement instead of it being an obstacle as actually the conduit, the path to bring the fiber connection. And so really fast install, really low cost. And then we're evolving it every day and improving it every day to make it last as long as it can possibly last. And we're kind of at this point now where we believe it can last as long as the surface that it's bonded to lasts. 
So if as roads go through their cycles of maintenance where they move traffic to an alternative path and they tear up the road and put the road back down, the fiber cable goes right back down along with it and it just sort of lives as the road lives and provides that value and economic value while it's living, just like the road provides that value while the road is is up and working. In what stage of commercialization are you in right now? Is this, you know, powering internet in any homes or businesses, or is it still more in the early days? Yeah, we've actually done a lot of installations for a variety of customers. A lot of them are on military bases. So Air Force customers and Army Corps of Engineers we're working with. We have other federal customers and we're working with InQtel. If you're not familiar with InQtel, I can definitely go into it a little bit. But InQtel is providing funding for a work plan to go and support a another federal customer. But on the commercial side, we've done installations across bridges, for example, We did a project with an internet service provider that's providing high-speed internet to like 36 apartment buildings, and they used our technique to cross the drive aisle in four locations. That installation's been up and running now four years, so that's been providing high-speed internet to an apartment community for four years. There's some other projects we worked on. For example, we installed at a camp in New York, a camp for special needs people we we helped provide connectivity to like five of their buildings on this camp that they just had no other way to get high-speed internet or access up to these buildings. There was too many rocks. It was a little bit steep. All the other um, vendors wouldn't even provide them quotes. And we came in and installed connectivity in, in a couple of days to five different buildings. Wow. And just to click on that offer there a little bit, can you tell us about InQtel? So if I understand InQtel, that's essentially the intelligence industry's venture capital arm? Is, is, that, is that a fair way to summarize it? That's basically it. the intelligence community's way to invest in companies that have a dual use technology and to get that technology a little bit more evolved so that they can potentially use it. And is the long-term focus to have the government be that primary customer, you know, different forms of the government to be that primary customer? Or do you think it's going to be like majority private industry in the future? I think the government right now is doing well to help de-risk the technology and really find good use cases for it and help evolve the machines that are installing the technology. But certainly the commercial market is where the engine's going to kick in and, and we'll see a lot of scale at that point. Getting the technology evolved to a point where an ISP or a municipality that's doing some big project throughout the town can utilize it, that's definitely where we want to get to. And that's where more of the recurring revenue would likely come in, whereas the government is more one-off type projects and things like that. Now, I mentioned there in the intro that you've raised $5 million in funding, but I know that there was a bit more context that we wanted to add there. So first off, let's you know, add that context. Then second is, you know, what have you learned about fundraising so far in your journey? Yeah, so early on, we've been working on this for a number of years, and my co-founder and I had questioned whether we should raise or maybe we should raise some amount, 500,000, or maybe we raise a million and try to get to some milestone. And every time we looked at that, we just said, you know, let's just keep trying to do this on our own. Let's bootstrap it. Let's utilize the SBIR program through the federal government. So there's a lot of good grants and contracts that we leverage to the point where we were doing probably close to 5 million in revenue before we ever raised our seed round. And so Then it got to a point where we had InQtel come to us and said, hey, we'd like to invest in you, but the way we work is you have to have previously had a price round. That's just the way we work. And 
close a seed round and have some other venture investors involved in your company. And so then that's what actually forced us to go out and raise a seed round so that we wouldn't lose that deal. So we were able to successfully raise the 5 million, have another amount come in through the work plan and then through AQTL and then continue to leverage the non-dilutive funding that comes from the SBIR program and other government contracts that we, you know, customers we've been working with over the years. Now, let's just imagine you were starting the company again today from scratch. What would be the number one piece of advice you'd give to yourself? Oh, man. Yeah, that's a tough one because everything we did felt frustrating and running into walls, but that's really what helped us evolve and and evolve our thinking and get over the hurdles. If I had to start over, it would probably come to the realization sooner that I needed to build the machine that automate. So it's kind of like two inventions, right? Like fiber tracks, that's what we call the product out on the road, was the original thinking, the invention. And that's what we started trying to go out and get customers with in our local municipality. And we were literally crawling around on our hands and knees with like knee pads on and getting pulled in wagons and kind of stuff to just kind of prove that that fiber tracks piece of it worked. But maybe coming to a a realization sooner that I also had to invent the machine that automated the installation of fiber tracks, the Trackster, getting that built a little sooner, working on that a little earlier than trying to go and just kind of, I don't know, flounder is, (laughs) I don't know if that's the right word, but just kind of just tread water barely enough to keep our, you know, our airways open from drowning. But it was really just like, let's focus on the real product, which is the Traxer. That's the what delivers the installation capability that people want. And just kind of trying to f- work on all of that at the same time is just, just tough. I mean, I was moonlighting it while I worked for the federal government. And then when I finally went to go full time on it, you know, just not spending as much time trying to get investors when we really didn't have a product yet. We had to really kind of prove that we had an MVP and maybe focusing more time on that would have been the smarter thing to do. Well, it sounds like this is a big problem. It's a complex problem. Like, do you ever have days where you're just like, God damn it, why didn't I just go and launch an <laughs> e-commerce company or a, a simple business? Do you ever have days like that? Oh my gosh. Me and my co-founder all the time were like, why didn't we just start a software company? Like, like we have an update we can just push out to people and we don't even have to leave our our desks. You know, we we not only jumped into hardware, but we're not just building like some wearable device or something that you can have in your home. I mean, this is we're in a really big sandbox here with these mega companies and the telecom space. We're trying to we're trying to bring telecom and road construction and sort of mashing them together. And it's just the perfect storm. And But, you know, that's where I think a lot of opportunities exist when you can find a little foothold that merges two mega industries together that really have no business working together and finding that overlap. I think that's where some really cool opportunities exist. I have to imagine, too, that it's just more fun, right? Working on big, hard problems is probably like a key for a more fulfilling life. And then the second part there is because it's hard, there's not, I would guess, nearly as much competition, or at least there's not as many founders who are sitting there. You know, there's not a thousand companies that have been funded to try to tackle this problem. There's a lot of founders who probably would look at it and say, like, oh, I don't want to go there. So that's you know, probably very good for you, right? Yeah. I mean, in a, in a sadistic kind of way, yes, maybe. Uh, no, I, I kind of joke, but it, it's been painful, but you're right. There has been 
some of the most rewarding experiences that, that I've ever had come out of this. And you're also right when we'd go to meet new investors or new groups for the first time and people were just like, I've never heard of anything like this before. And who's your competition? And our competition, it's kind of like, well, I guess it's like the other ways people install fiber cable over the last hundred years. And that's something that we're just changing, you know, we're flipping on its head. And so we have had, you know, a lot of almost gasps in, in some cases when we tell people what we're doing and people that have been in the industry for 20, 30, 40 years, they're kind of resistant to the idea at first. And then the more they talk to us about it and the more we talk to them about it, it's just like this, oh my gosh, this has some legs. There's something here that this could solve a really, really big problem that has just been so hard to solve for so many years. I mean, the problem has its own name, the last mile problem, you know, the last mile of getting connectivity to the home or the business, the federal government recognizes this problem with rural broadband and they're putting like $65 billion to try to inject into solving this problem. So it's it's just such a huge problem that we just kind of approach in a, in a really unique way. And yeah, it's been great in a lot of cases. It's also really, really hard too. Yeah, I can imagine and I can feel the pain from uh, from your words there. Now, final question for you. Let's zoom out into the future. So let's say five, 10 years from today, What's that big picture vision? For me, it's having fiber tracks, almost like a new standard way of delivering fiber where all the installers know about it. Designers can plan for it in their in their network designs. And it just sort of just becomes another way to do something that is so simple and so well understood by the world that it just sort of evolves into just another thing that nobody ever knows about and nobody knows how the internet works in general. And so it just sort of just disappears into that, but just having that global impact. Because when you start looking at surfaces being the way to bring a connection or communication line, everything is a surface. I mean, there's just so many new ways of bringing connectivity. And when people talk about 5G, for example, they're talking about wireless. We like to say wire more because every 5G antenna needs a fiber cable to connect to it. And so even for all the new technologies coming down the pipe, whether it's automated cars or smart cities, having backhaul for wireless antennas that you can place anywhere now with this capability, that flexibility is there. You know, if it's just globally well known and well understood in 10 years, like that'd be my ultimate dream. Amazing. Well, I love the mission. I love the vision. And I, I just really admire founders who tackle big problems like this. So we are up on time. So we'll need to wrap. Before we do, if people want to follow along with your journey as you build and execute on this vision, where should they go? www.traxel.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn, Daniel Turner, CEO of Traxel. I'd love to connect to anybody that, that's interested and wants to learn more. And uh, we're going to be going and presenting at the Fiber Connect Expo coming up here in Kissimmee, Florida in late August. So we'll be presenting the new generation, the next generation Trackster. We'll, we'll be revealing publicly for the first time there next month. And we'll link to the company website in the show notes, but just for anyone listening in, it's E-R-A-X-Y-L.com. That's right. Or is that right? T-R-A-X-Y-L.com. All right. Perfect. Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. I've really enjoyed this and I know the audience is going to as well. So really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Brad. I really enjoyed talking to you. All right. Keep in touch. 
This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 